You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on Are We Alone? And later in the show, scientific fraud, junk science, pseudoscience, urban myth. Can you spot the differences? I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. But before we go there, let's take our... Brains on vacation. Hey, this time off is just what I needed. Could you pass the sunblock? My medulla is getting a bit pink. Watch the sand. Grit in your hippocampus is a bummer. Ah, I can feel my neurons relaxing already. When our brains go out to lunch, when they hit the highway, when they're on the last train out of town, that's when skeptic Phil Plate steps in. In this case, it looks like some brains are out to sea. Well, I suppose literally that's true. You know, there's this oil leak in the Gulf of Mexico right now, and as we're as we're discussing this topic right now, it is gushing oil into the Gulf at huge rates. And some attempts have been made to stop it, but they're not working very well. And it's easy for us, the public, to feel pretty helpless about this. You know, we can't just go out and dive down 5,000 feet and stick our finger in the dike, as it were. This feeling evidently has gotten to a lot of people because there's a group, and they're called the Intention Experiment, who are basically trying to pray the leak shut. What do you mean to say? They're going to stop this gushing oil from the bottom of the Gulf by sitting around and, and praying that it be so. Basically, yeah. It's not so much praying. They, I don't think they would they would phrase it that way, but it, that's really what it is. They're meditating, and they're trying to sort of send their thoughts to the failed part of the pipe and try to close this valve so that the leak will stop. This sort of thing has been done before. If you want to call it prayer, prayer itself has been tested in double-blind studies and has been shown not to work. In other words, if somebody is sick and you pray over them, it might make you feel better, but it won't help them at all. That's fine if you're looking for a placebo effect for yourself, but it won't work to affect an actual physical change in the environment, which is what this group is trying to do using meditation, which is essentially the same thing as prayer in this case. So it's getting a bunch of people together and kind of wishing for something, right? I mean, can, can you give me some examples where the, this has been done before? Because you say it's been done before, and that sounds like maybe it works. Well, this is part of a group that has something called the intention experiment. And this is a, a group of people who are trying to get other people together to sort of send their thoughts out into space to make some sort of change in a physical environment. They've done a bunch of experiments where, for example, they've tried to make uh, leaves emit light. They, they claim that if you, if you use an extremely sensitive detector, leaves from a tree will emit individual photons of light. And that by thinking about these leaves, they can make them emit more light. Uh, they've done a bunch of different experiments like this. And I was reading their website, and I have to say, uh, you know, I'm skeptical. But of course, I'm skeptical about everything. Uh, but in this case, I'm, I'm even more than skeptical. Dubious experiments to try to prove things that are paranormal. Life after death. Can you tell if you're being stared at? That sort of thing. And, and whenever these experiments are looked at scientifically, they're always found to be uh, statistically not only insignificant, but suffering from confirmation bias. And, and that's what's going on here, really. People are looking at these things. They're saying, I want this to happen. And if something even close to that happens, they go, we did it. But <laughs> They don't make specific claims in advance. Like yeah. they said, we're going to meditate about Sri Lanka and try to bring down the level of violence there. And the level of violence went down. But how do you prove that that was their fault? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Look, in the case of the Gulf of Mexico oil slick, what's the harm? I mean, you think people want to sit around and say, let's just think that valve closed and stop the oil. I mean, hey, 
you know, is there any downside to that? Well, I got to say, if you have a claim like this, I claim that I can change the environment by thinking about it or by getting enough people to think about it. Look, you know, you can test that and you can set up an experiment and you can you can show if you do it correctly, whether or not this will work. And in fact, it has been done. It's shown never to work. So, you know, what is the harm in trying this more times? Well, you know, in this case, in this specific case about the Gulf of Mexico, the harm is is not a big deal. You know, you're not really going to make any change. If you're trying to pray over people instead of getting the medical help, hey, there's the harm because you're actually preventing somebody from getting help. In this case, maybe there's no harm. But what this is doing is promoting magical thinking. It's promoting the idea that you can just pray stuff away. You can use magic to make stuff change. And it we've shown over and over again that that does not work. So they're not doing any active harm here, but what they are doing is promoting a, a sense of mind that actually prevents people from going out and actually physically helping when something bad really does happen that we can help. All right. Well, Phil, I'm going to think hard about unclogging uh, the drain in my kitchen sink, and maybe it'll happen. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Seth. Join us next month for Brains on Vacation. Is that Sarah Bellum over there? What a dish. Haven't had your fill of Phil? I don't blame you. There's more of Phil Plate on his blog, badastronomy.com. Okay, well, that was a story in which those involved, while clearly engaged in some sort of wishful thinking, uh, they thought that what they were doing would work. They believed that their approach could be valid, in this case, meditating away the spill in the Gulf. Yeah, but their intentions, wacky though they were, were at least admirable. I mean, they might have fooled themselves, but there's no attempt to deceive anyone else here. But sometimes scientific claims do slip into fraud, real fraud. That's right. It's rare, but it does happen. And one such case in the last few years involves a man by the name of Jan Hendrik Schoen. Well, Jan Hendrik Schoen was a very self-possessed, slightly quiet, obliging young man from the University of Konstanz in Germany. And he goes to work at Bell Labs in New Jersey in 1998. In order to work in a research program on organic electronics. And the idea behind organic electronics was to make electronic circuitry out of plastics, like the kind of polyethylene you'd find in a plastic bag. But, Seth, why would you want to make electronics out of plastic? Well, it could be cheaper. The circuitry wouldn't be rigid. So you could build it into clothing, for example, or make it into big sheets you could hang up on the wall and use for television screens. <laughs> or make your bed with. Well, so the idea is that you replace silicon, I guess. Well, I don't think the idea was really to replace silicon, but just to have an alternative way of making electronics so that you could put in a really wide range of objects. Well, it sounds pretty good at any rate. Anyway, so this guy, Jan, he was an inventor, and it sounds like he well, did this. yes and no, because as Eugenie Samuel Reich says and writes about, uh, Jan Hendrik Schoen didn't really invent anything. He just claimed to have. So he, he made up his results? Yeah, yeah. But hang on. Look, first, what he claimed to have done was to have developed these materials, these materials that were made out of organic substances that worked for digital circuitry, that, that you could make transistors out of. He claimed to have created transistors that had very high mobility. There were high levels of charge that could well, pass wait, through Wait, wait, wait. What does that mean, high levels of mobility? Well, it means that these circuits were more efficient than the conventional ones. So they could be smaller. They could take less power. So does it mean that you can take them with you, mobility? No, Molly. The mobility refers to the charged particles inside the materials, the things that actually carry the currents in these tiny little circuits. It had very high mobility. There were high levels of charge that could pass through the material and produce very high-performance transistors. So he was building transistors, which are electronic switches. There's about a billion transistors in a regular laptop. And he was creating these things out of organic materials, plastics, and claiming high performances for them. So it sounds like this was really a breakthrough. It's almost as important as the invention of the transistor itself. Well, hang on, because that's pretty much what I asked her. So rather than making transistors in the traditional way, using a pure silicon or germanium or something, he was going to make them out of uh, the kind of things you might find in the kitchen why would that be so remarkable? Well, that would enable you to bring computing from being a hard box that has to sit on your desktop somewhere to being able to be incorporated with, into all kinds of materials, like a, a drinking mug, for example, or an item of clothing. 
but there's a but coming. Well, yeah, there is. Okay, so what happened? Well, here's the story. Well, what happened is that Sean was a very obliging person, and what he liked to do was to fit in with colleagues. He was a good team player. He was a bit of a sportsman. And so what he did was to try to hone his results so that they fit closely with what managers were hoping and expecting in the best possible scenario, the results that they might get. He he was going to cook the data? He was cooking the data. And he was also trying to fit with other scientific literature. So one of the things he would do is he'd do a lot of reading and then he would match his results to the type of thing you would expect for this sort of material. And inspired by that, he would produce all kinds of wonderful graphs, which his mentors believed were coming from devices that he was making. And they fell for it because it was quite carefully done to match the expectations that he knew they had. Did he seek to publish this? Oh, yes. He published in a wide variety of places. Shan was encouraged to publish, first of all, in Science and Nature, which are the two journals that are the main journals, the most prestigious journals that scientists can publish in today. And starting off with a publication in Science in early 2000, he had as many as 19 papers in Science and Nature combined, and he had actually a dozen in one year in 2001. So he was publishing results in prestigious journals, Science and Nature, lots of them. This wasn't one paper, two papers. This was a lot of papers. And he was claiming that he had found, what, the effect that would allow him to make this kind of transistor? In these papers for Nature and Science, Shen claimed to have found an array of exotic physical effects that it was predicted might be possible in the materials. So these were effects that wouldn't necessarily immediately interest the public, but they were of great interest to physicists and to scientists who understood that he was really pushing the limits of these materials as further than anyone had imagined would be possible. He published these results, but it wasn't true. Now, this could have been, of course, error in the experiments. It could be fraud. Which was it? Well, this was definitely fraud, and when Shun was eventually investigated, it was found that some of his data matched mathematical expressions to five or six decimal places, which was a way of saying that he had taken mathematical expressions and calculated the data that he wanted to present, and then just inserted that into his papers. So he, he wasn't measuring things. He was just calculating results. He was just calculating the result that was considered convincing. Were, were these data accepted by the publications that he submitted them to? The reviews for Shan, Shan's papers were uniformly positive. People were very excited by the good data that he showed. And even when they had questions, those those questions usually went to the methods because he was always very light on methods and very heavy on data because the data was easy for him to fabricate, but the methods were a bit more difficult because he wasn't really making the devices. And where the journals, I think, failed was that they didn't take these methodological questions seriously enough. And they would often see the good review, see that it was a very exciting advance, and put it into print without ensuring that all the questions that went into the review process had been answered. So, so it sounds as if you're faulting the journals. They receive these papers. They send them out for peer review. That's what journals do in, in science. That's how science referees itself. Right. And, and, and the people who reviewed the papers come back and they say, well, uh, OK, but there are a few things here we don't understand. Please elaborate here or, or tell me more about this. And the editors of the journal said uh, that's not necessary. They sort of ignored that. So that was a failure on the part of the editors of the journals, as you say. But what about this guy's colleagues? He wasn't publishing these papers strictly under his own name. Yeah, that's right. Chan had as many as 20 co-authors who published with him at different times. And there were two factors that really meant that none of these co-authors actually identified what he was doing, which was faking the data. The first factor was that a number of these people worked in unrelated disciplines to Shan. And the other factor was, I think, on the part of co-authors who had a more conceptual role in the research, such as Bertram Batlog, um, his supervisor and his manager. Batlog was deceived into thinking that the results were true, I think partly by his own, the fact that Shan was tailoring the results so closely to his own expectations. So he would outline an idea, Shan would take the idea, go away with it, do some extra reading, speak to a 
a few other experts and then come back with data that was exactly what Batlog would expect. So this was sort of self, self-delusional. Uh, they, they, they wanted these results. He was getting these results. Bell Labs certainly wanted these results. And so everything was hunky-dory. Was there a moment at which uh, some delicious moment here at which uh, he was caught out? Well, I found that there were actually multiple moments when people were very close to catching Shan but didn't manage to catch him. And that played out over a period of about 18 months with nobody actually pressing down and following through toughly enough on some observation they'd made that was actually very telling. So that was interesting. But the moment that actually brought it all crashing down was when another researcher at Bell Labs, Lin Lu, was in the patent office with a couple of Shan papers, and she noticed that two graphs in two Shan papers were identical to each other, even though the materials that he reported having worked on were different materials. And news of this soon spread among the staff at the labs. What was Shan's reaction? Shan said initially that he'd made a mistake and that one of the graphs was indeed a duplicate of the other graph, but that he would submit new data to the journal to replace the mistaken graph. So he wasn't fooling himself. He knew very well what he was doing. Yes, I think he knew what he was doing. He produced, he very quickly produced a new set of data. But then what happened is that other people started finding other examples of duplications. And once the idea of looking for duplications had taken hold, people came up with, I think, about six or eight duplications in the first couple of weeks. And this was too many for him to explain. I take it that uh, Jan Hendrik Schoen is no longer working at Bell Labs, or its successor, well, I should say. When these, alle- when these allegations came, were, were brought, and they were brought initially by researchers outside the lab, which gave an additional bit of pressure on the management, the management called in investigators, and they looked through Schoen's data for a period of three months and interviewed him and many of his collaborators. And then they came out with a devastating report that basically showed that much of this work had been completely faked. And Shun was fired. And because he had a work visa, he then also had to leave the United States. And um, he was later given a job at a company that makes air conditioning systems in Germany. And I've not followed his progress since then. Sounds like he's chilled out. Well, your (laughs) conclusion here then, Eugenie, is that Self-correcting science, this highly vaunted idea that science, scientists may make mistakes, but science is self-correcting. The mechanism seems to have failed here. The, the prestigious publications seem to have taken on a fraud. They, they, they published a fraud. I actually did conclude that the self-correcting processes of science do not work when it comes to fraud. And I was criticized by this from a number of scientists who found this a very controversial point of view because they wanted to defend science by saying it is self-correcting and the self-correction always works. But the fact is a clever fraud will be able to use the self-correcting process of science against science. He actually, Sean would actually take the feedback of colleagues and use that to hone his fraud And when they criticized him, they would say, you need to do a follow-up experiment of this kind. And then he would go back and pretend to do the follow-up experiment and produce data that reflected what exactly what it should say. So he would always use any kind of the scientific criticism to improve his case. And I believe that fraud is most often brought to light when scientists realize that they have to step out of the scientific mold and actually become whistleblowers and it's not part of the regular scientific process, and that's why it's so difficult when these cases occur. Eugenie Samuel-Wright, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Fantastic Plastic is the name of Eugenie Samuel-Wright's book, How the Biggest Fraud in Physics Shook the Scientific World. Coming up... From the famous Piltdown Man fraud to researchers painting laboratory mice to fool their peers, more stories of science fraud from skeptic Michael Shermer and why such cases are rare. Later in the show, why some believe that sounds emanating from the sea are those of a sea monster. It's Skeptic Check on Are We Alone? 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We heard the case of Jan Hendrik Schoen, a physicist who tried to fool the world into thinking he had invented digital circuitry based on organic materials, a kind of fantastic plastic. According to skeptic Michael Shermer, such cases have the telltale earmarks not of sloppy science or a series of unintended mistakes, but of something more, the dark side of science. Fraud or scientific misconduct is distinctly different from the various cognitive biases that might influence or cause self-deception on the part of scientists. It's, it's blatant deception, conscious, willful, intentional deception on the part of scientists for whatever their motives might be, but still it's out-and-out out fakery or plagiarism or making up data. Sounds like deliberate lying, really. Oh, it is, for sure. I mean, there's pretty clear-set rules about scientific misconduct, and that is the phrase that's commonly used now. Because it is kind of a legal thing. Scientists that get accused of this typically get lawyers <laughs> to defend themselves, and so you end up uh, with essentially lawsuits that usually get settled. But nonetheless, the language has to be super clear, and anybody accused of fraud has to be given their due rights to uh, fair hearing and so forth by a committee and whatnot. So all that has led to kind of a, a unified set of standards. And so basically you're looking for pretty overwhelming evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, so to speak, that the scientist in question actually faked something, made up data, made up subjects, made up results, and was aware of that he was doing this and did it with the intention to deceive. Michael, one of the most notorious cases is Piltdown Man. Case of pure fraud. What was that story, Piltdown Man? Right. Well, this was a time in 1912 when it was all the rage to sort of nationalize ancient human evolution, and the Germans and the French had Neanderthals and Cro-Magnons, and the British didn't have anybody. So a guy named Charles Dawson, who was a, uh, an attorney and an amateur archaeologist, suddenly, just in the nick of time, unearthed a couple of uh, skull fragments and a jaw that had sort of ancient-looking, big, primate-like, ape-like teeth. So the skull fragments looked kind of modern human-like, and the jaw looked very ancient. Well, was this the missing link? Was that the Yeah, argument? this is the missing link in that uh, in what was believed to be the sort of ladder of progress from ancient hominids to modern humans, and that this big-brained, ape-like jaw creature then would have filled that in nicely, and England would have had its, its own contribution to human evolution. So everybody was happy about that, and it was published all over the place, great fanfare. And that was 1912. It wasn't until 1953 that it was exposed as a hoax through new dating techniques that revealed the skull fragments and the jaw to be modern. And the jaw, in fact, was an orangutan jaw, and the skull fragments were of a modern human. Well, well let me get this straight. This guy, Charles Dawson, he takes uh, some human skull, probably one of his neighbors, who knows what, and then, and then he takes an orangutan jaw, he puts them in the same box, he hands them to the paleontology department down at the local university, and they buy into it. Well, actually what he did was he, he showed up first with a couple fragments, then he took them out to the site, and they did some more digging where, miraculously enough, they uncovered it. Again, the science of paleontology was still fairly crude. Today, you would notice if the dirt had already been turned up. He just dug it up, stuffed them in there, and, and then reburied them. That would be, I think, more clear today. And so he was able to get away with it for a, a long time. By the way, it isn't 100% sure that it was this guy, Charles Dawson, I mentioned. I think all the evidence points to him. But Piltdown is one of these great conspiracy-type uh, mysteries that no one has actually solved, so it opens the door for all sorts of people to, to speculate about who it might have been. But I think it's pretty clear, because this Dawson character had already had a track record. Don't, don't forget he was a lawyer. <laughs> so he already had a track record of doing some uh, questionable things with selling fraudulent antiquities. Well, so, well, it sounds like the basis of a lawyer joke, I mean, this kind of skullduggery, as it were. But is there any, any indication of what the motivation was? I mean, what was he trying to do? He's perpetrating a scientific fraud. This isn't just a practical joke on the neighbors. 
No, that's right. Well, because he wanted to be taken seriously as an amateur scientist, he didn't want to do law anymore. He wanted to do science, and he wanted to make a name for himself. It wasn't just the nationalism. The, the part about England finding its own ancient hominid, that explains the ready acceptance of the hoax. The motivation was more personal, and, and this, is, this gets at why scientists cheat at all. I mean, almost nobody, in fact, pretty much nobody cheats just for the sake of messing around with people's heads. They do it because they they want to make a name for themselves, they want to get published, they feel there's a lot of pressure to publish, they want the status and the grants and the money and the books and the contracts and the advancement in their university. And typically, they believe that the data they're faking probably would have come out that way anyway had they not faked it. They're just ahead of the curve. Yeah, they're ahead of the curve. So, yeah. I mean, you might say that the motives are not quite is, say, like Bernie Madoff, where he's just in it for the money. Right. Scientists that do this, they're usually in it for other reasons, and they believe that it would have turned out that way anyway. I'm talking with Michael Shermer, skeptic and publisher. Well, Michael, I particularly like the case of uh, William Summerlin, who apparently colored in uh, the fur of a mouse with a felt pen. That's like a, a page out of do-it-yourself fraud. <laughs> what, what was he trying to do by, by coloring up his mouse? I know it's a funny story. You just picture somebody uh, walking in in the middle of that going, oops. <laughs> well, so in the uh, early 70s, he was working at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, and, and he was doing research on transplantation immunology. Recall that the problem is with transplantation is that your uh, immune system attacks the foreign tissues. So he was working on ways to uh, get around that by keeping the tissue in a particular kind of culture that he had cultivated and then transplant it and, and with the idea that it wouldn't be rejected by the, the host. And, and so he was using white mice with, with uh, patches of black fur and, and to show that they would accept the patches, but the body continued to, the host rejected the patches, so he just colored them in uh, with his pen to show that they were accepted, again, with the belief that he was going to figure this out sooner or later anyway but that he was under pressure to publish and, and uh, show some results at his lab, and so, but he got caught. Yeah, yeah, he went too far. <laughs> okay. Now, some fraud cases are big news, but uh, how often do you think fraud really occurs in science that you know, doesn't make the headlines? I mean, how pervasive is this, uh, the need to deceive? Uh, nobody knows for sure, somewhere between 0.1% and 1%, and sometimes you see a high of like 10%. Uh, I think it's super low because of the checks and balances and all the people that are involved. I mean, most science is conducted collaboratively, and like any conspiracy, two people can keep a secret if one of them's dead. You know, people can't keep their mouth shut. And if you have a big lab where, you know, somebody's cheating, others will come forward. I mean, whistleblowers are fairly common, uh, especially if it's an environment where whistleblowers are protected, which they are now, legally. And so I think that with graduate students around, colleague collaboration, you know, peer review and so on, uh, it's pretty risky to do it. And I think most people don't. But again, we don't have solid data on it because, you know, who's actually keeping track of that sort of thing where we wouldn't actually know who was doing it and didn't get caught. We only know the ones that uh, where people get caught. It is pretty rare. But I have to say, compared to what? Politics? religious priestly scams and controversies. Uh, you know, the news is rampant with this pretty much daily in politics. There's there's cons and scans and frauds and Wall Street and Main Street and so on. Uh, so compared to all other fields, I think science is greatly sophisticated in, in detecting fraud. Relatively clean. Well, finally, Michael, uh, climate change. This is not a case of fraud. This is a case of the public or many members of the public thinking that it is fraud. How can you convince the public when science isn't being fraudulent? It's an important question. Uh, in fact, our whole next issue of Skeptic Magazine is devoted to climate skepticism versus climate denial. So it's okay to be skeptical of this particular study or that particular set of data. And that's what scientists do all the time. They, are, they have these debates about what that, that experiment means or how that set of data should be interpreted. Climate denial is where you just flat out say it can't be true. It isn't true. It's all a scam. It's all a con. It's all a, a fraud uh, done in the name of you know vast left-wing conspiracy to uh, destroy our economy. And, and, and so the public has to be aware of the fact that within science, there are communities that keep checks and balances on each other. If somebody really did completely fabricate a set of data to show that the earth is getting warmer and it's caused by human activity... I mean, it would have to go through multiple uh, stages of peer review to get published, and then there, there was somebody else who could easily make his name, some clever grad student somewhere, by debunking that. And that 
That doesn't happen. What we see instead is a convergence of evidence toward this conclusion that Earth really is getting warmer and, and probably a good deal of that is caused by human activity. And, and so when you hear about the consensus, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the fact that they've all kept tabs on each other. They've checked and rechecked and rechecked those data. That's why we need those kinds of checks and balances. We need the peer review. We need collaborative science just so that the public knows. In a way, science is a public trust. So the public knows somebody's checking the checkers. <laughs> somebody's checking the scientists and somebody's checking the checkers who are checking the scientists. And that you have multiple layers of checks and balances there. Michael Shermer, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, you're welcome. Michael Shermer is publisher of Skeptic Magazine. He's the director of the Skeptic Society. You can also read his column monthly in Scientific American. Now, we heard about the public suspicion that climate science might be fraud, and these suspicions about climate change science were heightened after a number of emails were hacked into at the University of East Anglia in November 2009. The contents were cited by some as evidence of scientific fraud. That is, a collusion by thousands of climate scientists around the world to deceive the public about whether the Earth was indeed warming, as well as the role of humans in producing that effect. Since then, the errors in the Intergovernmental Climate Change Panel, the IPCC report, were found to be minor and that the overall conclusions of the panel were sound. However, an independent panel has convened to further review the workings of the IPCC so that the policies that led to these errors aren't repeated. Meanwhile, scientists themselves are not completely off the hook, says Harvard University's Sheila Jasanoff. The scientific method of climate science is robust, but the humans behind it are, after all, still human, and they have egos. To the extent that they've shown arrogance, it's in not responding to the public's legitimate desire to know how mistakes could happen, why certain kinds of conflicts were papered over, why certain requests for information were not met. Those are legitimate issues, and I don't think that the scientists have been very good at responding to those. Well, it sounds like what you're saying is that the people in this case, ClimateGate mostly referring to these emails that were being written at the University of East Anglia in the UK, uh, that they were homo sapiens. They were, they were people, right? <laughs> yes, indeed. They were, they were people. And the other important thing to note is that science is a process. And if you take a small slice of conversations, if you will, out of that process, then you're ignoring an evolution. You're ignoring the question whether over time science is getting better, whether disagreements that appear at a particular moment in time are narrowing over the course of a period. You're taking one particular subset of a community and not considering validation coming from multiple different sources. So I think that there's this sort of artificiality to breaking into one small segment of a scientific conversation and then characterizing the entire quality and nature of the conversation. Well, it sounds like they're missing the big picture of the science. But just to get back to this briefly, being that we are people, we are very sensitive to attitudes. And the reaction of many of the scientists involved in this has been described as arrogant, defensive. Is that accurate? Well, yes, I think that the behavior of at least some scientists has been defensive, though I think that the steps that many of the leaders of the climate science community have taken has been anything but defensive, and if anything, may even have gone overboard in being apologetic. But this sounds to me like a, a bit of an old problem in the sense that, at least going back to the Second World War, you know, people were saying, well, the scientists have an obligation to explain what they're doing to the public. But from the scientist's point of view, I mean, my colleagues down the hall here who are doing some sort of research on the outer solar system, they don't see the necessity to explain to the public what they're doing. They want to do their science. That's their job to do the science and not necessarily their job to explain it to the public. I think there are a couple of very good reasons to do some explaining. One is that we pay for a lot of science. And so the National Science Foundation in the U.S. requires that we who apply for money to the federal government should actually explain 
the broader impacts of what we're doing. And I think that's perfectly legitimate in a democratic society. But the thing that I'm talking about is not so much what the actual work of the science is about, but how judgment is exercised in arriving at the kinds of conclusions that people arrive at. I heard a uh, talk show host just the other night talking about how some of the temperatures were measured to determine to what extent, you know, global warming is taking place and quantify that. And they said, well, you know, in this case, the thermometers essentially were set down near some piece of machinery, which naturally was warm. And consequently, you know, none of this is to be trusted. And that sort of argues for greater transparency on the part of the researchers to to make it clear that they're aware of this kind of trap. You know, they know what they're doing. There's a very long-standing demonstration that when people disagree on values, they will end up disagreeing on facts as well. So that as long as people are opposed to each other on how much regulation there should be, or whether they need to change their behavior patterns or not, they will end up questioning the other side's data and the foundations of those data, and it will become an almost never-ending battle. There's actually a term for it, experimenters' regress is a term that some sociologists of science have used, and it just means in lay terms that if you want to pick holes in somebody else's data, you can always find that hole to pick. Sheila, do you think that there's been a change in the public's attitude towards science, maybe in the last couple of decades or maybe the last half century, this perceived arrogance of scientists, which at least has been attached to this story, that the scientists feel they know best. When I was a kid, it was assumed that scientists knew best. They were experts. They were professionals. They worked with data. They were dispassionate. The truth came out today, is that substantively different than it was then? And if so, why? I think it is different in a number of different ways. And I think that the differences have to do with the enormous success of science. So I think that we rely on science to solve many more of the world's problems than we once used to do. And that is, in a way, as it should be, because I think science is simply the name for human beings finding out more about their fundamental condition whether as human beings or as societies or in nature or in the environment. So I think legitimately and understandably, as we become more scientifically sophisticated societies, science enters into more and more of what we do. And then it begins to touch on everybody's lives, whether it's for health reasons or for dietary reasons or for energy reasons. We have to say we want to turn towards science. Science is indispensably a part of all our lives. So part of the flip side of that caring is the questioning. Well, finally, Sheila, we've talked about the crisis of confidence in science that this issue has brought to the fore. But what about the flip side? We should trust scientists. I would think that you might agree with that, but tell me why. Well, I think that the reason we should trust scientists, the same reasons that we always had to trust scientists. Scientists have an inbuilt tradition of criticizing each other's work. I think that that's a terribly important reason to trust science. We can trust scientists by and large when the question is about are they getting the science right? By and large, we should recognize that science makes mistakes. They should be prepared to admit it in public. But the question, are they getting the right science, is a somewhat more complicated affair. Are they studying the right problems? Are they studying problems or creating technologies without thinking how right it is for the world to be developing those technologies? So I think that that other set of questions, the rightness of the science, you know, in those terms, the purposes, the aims, the goals, those are questions where people are not going to trust scientists. They're going to want to have much more of a say in those sorts of things. Sheila Jasanoff, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you very much for inviting me. Sheila Jasanoff is professor of science and public policy at Harvard University. Coming up, from the sound of unknown sea monsters to how the Denver airport may take over the world, the strange things that people believe without a shred of evidence, it's Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on Are We Alone? From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. 
With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Skeptic Check, Fraudcast News on Are We Alone? Our monthly look at critical thinking. And we have heard about scientific fraud and cases where there is intent to deceive. But sometimes bad information circulates without any purposeful deception, such as the bloop. The bloop is a sound that was recorded on NOAA hydrophones in 1997, and it it was heard throughout the summer of 1997 about a half dozen times. And nobody knows what it is. That's what's so cool about it, and that's why it's kind of become something of an Internet phenomenon is this sound, the bloop. And the Internet has given this strange sound a wider resonance than it would have otherwise have had. This sound emanating from the sea has been dubbed the bloop and hasn't been heard since those few times in 1997. It was picked up then by hydrophones, that is, underwater microphones that are operated by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The hydrophones were originally put there to detect Soviet submarines during the Cold War, but they've been used in the past few decades for monitoring undersea seismic events. Anyway, they detected this bloop, and scientists simply have no clear-cut explanation for its cause, even after all these years. According to skeptic Brian Dunning, this opens up the door for some imaginative interpretation. What made this bloop sound? It has the sound characteristics of a giant unknown animal. And so it's, it's often used as evidence that some giant cryptid exists to the depths of the ocean. So this sound was coming from deep under the Pacific Ocean? It was coming from very deep, and it was very loud. It was, it was about 1,750 kilometers west of Chile in the South Pacific. So it's really remote. There's nothing there. There's no islands. And it was very deep down, about 13,000, 14,000 feet underwater. Now, these hydrophones that the uh, government has down there for oceanic research, presumably, what sort of sounds do they normally pick up? Well, these were, these were set up, this was an array that was normally set up for long-term monitoring of seismic events on what's called the East Pacific Rise, uh, you know, a, a geological structure under the ocean. And so it was normally just listening for, you know, earthquakes, volcanoes, that kind of thing, and that's what it's used for. And, but it heard this, and this did not sound like an earthquake, presumably. Did not sound like an earthquake. In fact, if you'd like to hear what an earthquake sounds like, here's what an earthquake would sound like on that array. So you can see that this sounds nothing like that. And if you want to hear a volcano, here's an undersea volcano sound. And again, you can see they're they're completely dissimilar. So the reason people think this must be an animal is because it sounds kind of like a whale. Well, here's a blue whale sound. So they really don't sound very much alike. The bloop is kind of bloop, whereas a whale sound has, it has a definite tone to its voice, like a pitch, like a hmm, it sounds like a voice. And the bloop does not sound like a voice. But how did this sound develop notoriety? How did people come to think of it as being a deep sea creature? I mean, who was saying that? Not N-O-A-A. You know, it's just one of these things that starts as a rumor. Noah absolutely does not say. They're not in the habit of taking unidentified sounds and saying, we think this is a giant cryptid. No, they just give you just the raw data, just the raw facts. Nobody in Noah ever said that this is a, a giant animal. It's just something that some cryptozoologists somewhere on the Internet somehow got a hold of, and the rumor just kind of grew from there. So this is something to be skeptical of, at least the interpretation of what this sound is. The sound presumably is real, but the interpretation that this is some sort of animal, some, some giant mutant squid that we've never found before, uh, that, that just seems unlikely given the sort of uh, comparison you've made to other sounds that are you know, also picked up by these hydrophones. So it, it, is this fraud or is it just junk science or is it just an Internet rumor? How would you typify this? 
I would say this is just kind of pop culture sensationalism. People love to believe things that are interesting, that are cool, that are that are unusual. And it's really easy to promote ideas that are cool or interesting or unusual. There's no need to put these things through the reality filter because that doesn't make them more interesting. It's just sensational. And that's what people love. And that's why these rumors are so popular. Well, another story making the rounds, Brian, is uh, something called the Denver Airport Conspiracy Theory. And to me, that sounds like the the fact that they often lose my luggage. But what is this conspiracy? Well, the Denver Airport was rebuilt um, uh, recently. And when the new airport reopened, suddenly people started seeing all these signs and symbols throughout it that conspiracy theorists interpreted as this airport was designed by the Illuminati, and it's like their secret base from which they're going to launch the global apocalypse to start the new world order. From, from, from the Denver airport? I mean, have they considered that the food isn't very good? Well, give, give me an example of the kind of, th- <laughs> the, the kind of things they saw. Okay. The main thing is these two murals. Now, the airport hired a number of artists to design murals throughout the airport, and two of them in particular, um, one describes, it shows something like a giant soldier with a bunch of dead bodies, kind of macabre. And it's actually a a diptych, a a two-part mural. If you look at the other side, suddenly the children of the world have taken over, the soldier is dead, and and they're rebuilding a new world. And so that's that's like a a perfect little microcosm of, of this conspiracy story. It's, oh, the Illuminati have decided to announce their plans. They're going to have soldiers kill everyone in the world. And then these, this sort of this, you know, elite race of people will take over and, and have the new lower population world at their control. There's a place on the floor where they've got, um, they have Indian words um, in the Navajo language um, written in the floor in, in some places. And one of them says, does it dit guy? And people think, oh, that must be an alien language. Um, <laughs> well, it, well, it is in a way, isn't it? <laughs> so, uh, there's a mine car that says A-U-A-G, which, of course, you and I know means gold and silver. It's the chemical science for gold and silver. And being a mine car, Colorado has this rich history of mining. Makes sense to you and I. But people have interpreted that as A-U-A-G can also stand for Australia antigen, which is the name of a protein that covers the hepatitis B molecule. So the the idea is that this is what's going to be used to accomplish the global apocalypse, is this Australia antigen. Now, that's just wrong every way you look at it. Um, First of all, hepatitis is, is not particularly dangerous. We have vaccines for it. It's treatable. It's not something that you would use to kill all the people in the world. And Australia antigen is just the protein that covers it. It's not even the toxin itself. So it's just silly. But these are the things that, that people hear about them. People don't have a good reason to question them because they sound exciting and they sound sensational and they just get propagated and they get promoted. And uh, it's, it's really something that people take quite passionately. If you look on my website at skeptoid.com and you search for the Denver airport episode, you read the comments, boy, I mean, there are death threats. People threaten me with death for not acknowledging that this is actually what's going to happen. Do you you have any idea? I mean, you're talking about people who believe this story. And, you know, on the face of it, it's rather difficult to believe this story. The idea that the Denver airport is the the nexus of of a plot to take over the world. What sort of people are believing this? And, And how do you know that they're believing it? You know, it's, it doesn't take a, an unusual type of person to be convinced by this thing. If you show someone this weird language written in the floor, you say, what is that? That's no earthly language, obviously. The average person is going to say, boy, you're right. That is really strange. So it, it's not a case of people having to be weird or having to have, you know, be crazy or something to believe this stuff. It's just that if you give them an explanation that's interesting and fascinating and compelling, they're really likely to be intrigued by it. Well, they, they obviously, they like a good story. Everybody likes a good story. I'm sure that's wired into our genes because it has a certain amount of survival value, right? But, but why weird stories? Is this because of our penchant for believing that, that people are covering up, that there's always a conspiracy somewhere about something? Let me tell you, if you wanted to start an urban legend, if you wanted to start something that you want people to believe, here's how you would do it. It's actually pretty simple to do. The number one ingredient that you have to have is that you have to implicate some government conspiracy. The establishment is pulling the wool over our eyes. It has to be sensational. And if the truth is something that's natural and simple and pure and incredibly easy, 
and the government or the establishment is suppressing that from us. Those are the ingredients right there that make for a great story that people are going to want to believe. In fact, if you turn on, you know, the Discovery Channel, the History Channel, name any of these networks, and you watch a documentary that promotes some weird ghost story or something strange from history, those are the ingredients that it's going to have. That's how you make a story that people are intrigued with and want to believe. Well, Brian Dunning, I want to thank you very much for talking with me, and I, I think that uh, my future trips to Colorado will go via Colorado Springs. <laughs> That's the <laughs> safe bet. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. Brian Dunning is a science journalist, and he's the host of the podcast Skeptoid. Well, you know, Seth, what he said about those murals, I've seen those murals, and they are quite ominous. One of them has this soldier in one hand. He has a big sword, and he also has a machine gun. They're pretty scary. Yeah, well, they are. But we know where those murals came from. They, they, they weren't painted late at night when nobody was looking. They were commissioned. And, you know, they were commissioned from an artist, Leo Tanguma, who was trained in Mexico, and he's put social commentary up there. He's trying to show the evils of greed and violence, the virtues of the poor and, and working hard and that sort of thing. I mean, nothing terribly radical there. So it sounds like he's inspired by maybe uh, Diego Rivera, that sort of mural. Yeah, exactly. For people who've been to Mexico City and seen the Diego Rivera murals on the uh, presidential palace, it looks like a screed against capitalism and, and the virtues of socialism, although it has to be said that Diego Rivera didn't hesitate to take money from anyone. But nonetheless, you know, that's a, that's a tradition in this kind of work. And that's what you're seeing, I think, in uh, in Denver. You know, there are Diego Rivera murals in Coit Tower in San Francisco. And I, I don't think that they were put there as an indication of the uh, soon-to-be takeover of San Francisco by the Illuminati. God, that would be, but that wouldn't, be. That, wouldn't that be dramatic, though? So, well, the other idea of an urban myth, like how do you start your own urban myth? Do you have one that you want to get started? How can we disseminate it? Well, let me think. As Brian said, in order to be successful as an urban myth, the first thing you have to do is implicate the government. There, there has to be some conspiracy by those in power. And frankly, I think they're taking my socks because, you know, I have like a half a dozen socks that don't have their mates. Now, where'd they go? I mean, Seth, I think that's gonna... just not going to cut it on the Internet. I don't think it's salacious enough. Missing socks. Well, a government conspiracy. Well, you know, maybe it's something like this. This radio show is a government conspiracy to disseminate not misinformation, but information, because that actually is the, the most powerful thing that there is. So we're doing evil by doing good. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> and that's it for our show. Whether it's evil or good, we'd like to thank Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler for their help. And also the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where looking for life elsewhere in the universe requires thinking critically about scientific evidence. You've been listening to Skeptic Check, Fraudcast News, our monthly look at critical thinking on Are We Alone? Hey, you can browse our archive, even listen to the show again on our website, radio.seti.org. And you can take our word for that. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.